Hi guys, this is David Lucarella, your podcast host for Rock Album Analysts. I'm also the writer of the critically acclaimed crime drama comic book, Tinseltown, about one of the first female police officers in the early days of Hollywood. In real life, my mother was a police officer, so Tinseltown is also my tribute to her. Currently, if you go to Indiegogo.com and type in Alterna, you'll come up with the Alterna pre-order campaign, where you can pre-order Tinseltown Losing the Light number 4. And as soon as you add that into your cart, you'll be able to add on all the other issues of Tinseltown to date. Here's a little trailer to give you an idea of what Tinseltown is all about. In 2018, writer David Lucarelli and artist Henry Ponciano brought you the acclaimed period crime drama Tinseltown. Now join Officer Abigail Moore for her second adventure in Tinseltown, Losing the Light. 1916, Hollywood. Officer Abigail Moore is back on the lot. What did I miss? There's been some accidents. And action! Look out! Hey, you! Stop! I'd say you got a mole in Utopia. What can I say? I believe in living a life without limits. <laughs> I had a friend who believed in the same thing. Yeah? How'd that work out? It didn't. That's a wrap, people. We're losing the light. They want to ban all their films. We're weeks away from not being able to make payroll, and the sharks smell blood in the water. The flickers corrupt our youth. 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 That's enough. Extra, extra war in Europe. I have a proposition. A chance to save the studio. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Tell me something. Do you consider yourself a German? Or an American first? Trust no one. Keep an eye out for anything suspicious. And watch your back. I killed my wife. I watched the light go out of her eyes. Just think what I'm going to do to you. Tensile Town, Losing the Light, the five-issue limited series from Alterna. Issue four coming soon. Once again. To order Tinseltown, go to Indiegogo.com and type in Alterna, A-L-T-E-R-N-A, and the Alterna pre-order campaign will come right up. And if you want to sample some of Alterna's other great indie comics titles, you can get 10 comics for only 30 bucks. And now, on to our regularly scheduled podcast. <music> Thank you.
Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavity. And today we're going to be taking a look at the spaghetti incident question mark uh guns and roses all covers follow-up to the use your illusion double albums and um this album was recorded between 1992-1993 it would be uh the only guns and roses album to feature guitarist uh gilby clark gilby clark played for before this her name is but he wasn't he wasn't on the albums um, I, know, I know, but who did he play for before this? Was oh, it, who did he play for before? Uh, Mike, that would be you. Who, who was Gilby? Yeah, he was it? in uh, the mid-80s. He was in a band called Candy. He was also in a band called Kills for Frills. Um, okay. And I think at that time, was, you know, after that band broke up, he was looking for the guitar player, and they contacted Gilby. So you know, he was on the scene for, for quite a while. Yeah, his name is very familiar. So Yeah. Yeah, but um, all those bands that I mentioned uh, have albums that they recorded. You can find them on vinyl to look hard enough. Okay, so they recorded this album. Some of these tracks they recorded during the Use Your Illusion sessions, um, and then they were they would do additional tracks uh, while they were on the road on the tour. So it was recorded at A and M Studios, Record Plant Studios, Rumbo Recorders, Can Am Studios, Sound Techniques, Triad Studios, Conway Recording Studios, and Oceanway Recording. Um, this would be the last album that was produced by Mike Klink for Guns N' Roses to date. And um, Mike, just before we started rolling, you made the point that overall this album is a lot less of a heavy lift to listen to than the Usual Illusion albums, which are in some ways, you know, one, one could say might be considered a little on the pretentious side. Yeah, it's, it's 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 much more easy of a listen in a way. I mean, those albums are so I don't want to say bloated, but just so produced and such a heavy listen in a way. And this thing, this thing seems like a, a thing where they just had a fun time recording it. There's you know the overdubs are kind of sparse. It, it's you know it sounds like a band is playing together in the room much more so than some of the stuff from the original records in a way. Um, yeah, I, it's much more straight ahead production wise. Yeah, and I find that refreshing, and also it's it's interesting too because I mean at this point, I mean these guys were on their way down here. I mean it, it almost became like you know, there were so many other things happening in the music world that these guys became I don't want to say this in a mean way, but they seemed less important. You know, uh-huh. I mean, it, it was yeah, it was a weird time for you know these guys to release an album. And I mean, I was fun. It was fun to get the record when it came out, but it was just it seemed like I don't know. <laughs> A bunch of cover songs is the next record you're going to put out, you know, with the lineup that you know, they became, you know, you have like a new drummer and you've got, you know, new rhythm section, you've got a new guitar player and then you're going to put out an album of covers. <laughs> it's usually right. a last ditch attempt from bands, yeah. it seems like a lot of times, like even, yeah, like bands are always like, this will be my comeback record of covers of songs that informed me. You know what I mean? Even the new Ace Frehley album is mostly covers, right? I mean, it's, you know, it seems like. I He's done a couple of, a of yeah, covers two. on the album. Okay, yeah. all right, sorry. I would never disrespect Ace. I have a student named Ace, and I always say, Ace, hey, oh, you're my favorite guitarist. Isn't that great? <laughs> we know a guy out here named Ace who's from Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, uh, the, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I kept making comparisons to this, to the Metallica's 599 EP or whatever they put out, Garage Days. Garage Days. Yeah, yes. you know what I mean? It's, it's mm-hmm. almost similar to the bands that they cover. You know what I mean? I think they did a Misfit song on both, yeah. right? Or at least something mm-hmm. penned by Danzig. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it almost feels like, whereas the Metallica thing was a way to sort of get themselves back to basics um mm. you know what i mean and sort mm. of unbloat themselves this seems like a this is all we're going to be able to pull off yeah i could see that i mean i do think that um there's only several reasons for a band to do an album like this one mm. you want to have a tip of the hat to some of the bands that may have influenced you that may not be as widely known or accepted and you want to kind of spread um those bands influence a little bit and and do that or you you know there are certain songs that speak to you for whatever reason um that you want to do your own radical reinterpretation of them because you hear them uh as as being orchestrated differently or whatever I don't think there's a whole lot of radical reinterpretation of these songs going on. I do think that there are some songs that, that are, are made more palatable uh, than the originals because, you know, Slash is a better guitar player and Axel's a better singer than maybe some of the original punk rock guys that wrote and played these songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree because yeah, it's it's almost like they stuck to the original arrangements and they stuck to most of the original keys and uh, but it's almost like a almost like a I don't want to say better but like a, a stronger version of, of some of these songs and I thought it was interesting too that most of the the bands that they chose to cover were, were punk bands you know the easiest yeah. thing to do would have been you know throw out a bunch of you know Stones covers and Aerosmith covers and that would have been you know what people expected from this band but I think this shows another side of this band that. Maybe you didn't get the first time you heard, you know, um, appetite and illusion. You get to see like the punk rock side and the punk rock influence uh, that this band has. I think it's refreshing in that way. Well, I was just going to say this listing of bands that they choose is almost literally like this would be the resume that you would put up to everybody in your freshman dorm and say, no, look, I'm cool. You know what I mean? I mean, it's almost like, I mean, every single one of th- these are all bands that I discovered my senior year or freshman year of college, you know what I mean? And it's almost like, it, because it was almost like required listening when you went to college, you know what I mean? Or when you were a senior in high school to sort of delve back into, or to, to say that you had street cred, that you liked, you know, like this kind of stuff, because this is what you were supposed to like. Um, mm. And I did, a lot of it I really did like, you know what I mean? It really did speak to me at the time, but it's on, it's, it's so odd. I mean, it's almost like, you know, why wouldn't you throw in something by some really obscure band? You know what I mean? Or something like that. But I don't know. That's sort of how I, I, I bought it. It's sort of, I mean, it, it's almost like it's, it's a primer for the 16-year-old kid that buys it. And this is saying, these are the other bands that you should be listening to. You know what I mean? And that's how it feels to me. It's sort of like a it's like a primer of cool music, you know? Okay. Um, so I could, I, I could see that. Um, two things before we jump into the first song. One, I, I think we have to talk about the title, the spaghetti incident, question mark. Yeah. Um, 
I've read two different versions now about where this title comes from. So one is that supposedly um, there was a food fight between Axl Rose and Steven Adler that involved spaghetti. And this was brought up in the court trial and was referred to humorously as the spaghetti incident. That's one version of it. The other version that I have heard is that it had something to do with the fact that Steven Adler used to keep his drugs in the refrigerator and there was some kind of mix up or something because they also had spaghetti in the refrigerator and you know so it had less to do with the food fight than some confusion thereof that was also brought up in a court trial apparently so um, yeah the, the other part that i saw that i read about that story is apparently that was you know spaghetti was the code word for you know his, his drugs mm. yeah that's what i heard too because i mean I, I hate when i open up the refrigerator and i can't tell what's the food and what's the drugs you know that just right me. that is annoying that is you know annoying. it's yeah. like hmm. if, if stuff's not clearly labeled <laughs> right this stuff is white noodles <laughs> with red sauce and this is little powders i don't i don't know yeah approach, yeah. approach with caution yeah. maybe this is right. the parmesan cheese i put on the <laughs> The uh, the other thing I, I just talking real quick about the overall production of this album, um, there's a lot of high end yeah. on this record. Like it just rips your head off, and I say that as a guy who's in his mid fifties who probably can't hear <laughs> as much high end as I used to be able to hear twenty years ago. Um, but but like from the opening note of this album, like like I I feel like it would be easier to listen to if it had a radical re-EQing in the mm. mastering stage because uh and you know I know why this happens it happens because you have sound engineers and mastering engineers who themselves have been listening to loud music for too long and they burn out their ability oh. to hear these high frequencies yeah so when they don't hear them they overcompensate crank them. Yeah. and crank them up and I I would say that this album is definitely an example of that yeah, which is a shame in a way too, because I listened to this a bunch of times in the last couple of weeks, listening on, on CD and vinyl, and I was I was missing that bottom end because I really still think that this seems like a launching pad for this lineup. Like it, you can hear the rhythm guitar between Slash and, and, and Gilby, it's cool. The rhythm section is is they're they're gelling, it's great. You know, Matt's a great drummer. Duff is you know still holding his own as a bass player and, and, and cutting through, but you miss the rhythm section because you hear mostly drums and guitars in high end. And, but you don't hear the rhythm section the way that you should. It's, it's yeah. even a little fuller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Great point, Dave. Yeah. There's no, yeah, that's a very good point, Dave, because there is no moment where I was like, yeah, that's a great bass line, because there's nothing really there that. Yeah, they're there, but you can't hear them in a way. Yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, they're, it doesn't come through. Mm -hmm. All right. Track one Since I Don't Have You. Uh, well, the Skyliners are from Pittsburgh, where we're all from. So that's good to know. Yes. And, uh, so good choice there. Um, I sort of liked it because I like the whole guitar taking over sort of horn sections and things like that. That was kind of neat or, or vocal lines. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't listen to the original, but I'm sure it doesn't have, you know what I mean? The same sort of, uh, I think the Skyliners were technically like a doo-wop group, correct? They were. Yeah. They so, were. I mean, they're, they're taking the lines, the vocal lines and using it as guitar lines and things like that, which I thought was kind of a nice interpretation. But um, I mean, what you know, 
the Skyliners are the Skyliners, you know? I mean, it's, there was nothing there that really like, I was like, yeah, this is a great interpretation of this. I really needed to hear this again. So, but I was impressed. I mean, it's the one outlier mostly on the album. You know what I mean? It's the one weird choice, which I actually kind of dig. And I, I guess it harkens back to their childhoods or something like that, or something their parents or grandparents liked, or, you know, something like that. That's kind of neat, you know, because they're sort of paying homage to, you know, that kind of stuff. It's where the roots go farthest back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, Mike, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I love the Pittsburgh connection. Um, I think I couldn't find anything about who determined, like, this was going to be one of the songs that they were going to put on this record. It seems like the weirdest choice in a way, especially to lead out the it, record. It was Axel's decision. He apparently right? made cassette copies of every, you know, of the thing for oh, everybody, man. and they recorded it all in one day, like, on their day off while they were on the road. Okay. So all right. Yeah. Yeah, but I think John had mentioned too, there's a lot of great, you know, guitar on this record overall from Slash, and I think he shines through in a way because, you know, it's, you know, mimicking melodies of songs and stuff. I mean, it's, I think the strongest part of this record in a way, other than, you know, maybe actual vocals and, and, and Matt's drumming is, is Slash's guitar. I mean, it, it really shines through in a clean way that you didn't really hear on the Illusion album because it was so densely produced. Because um, not a lot of... A lot of nice leads in here. Yeah. That I really, yeah, that kind of grabbed my attention. And uh, the two things that I found, you know, interesting about you know, the track overall were the, the funny insertion of the line, you know, we're effed, you know, after I think the second right. track. Yep, <laughs> we're fucked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then the last thing was, you know, the weird kind of, you know, watery, like reggae ending in a way. That, that seemed kind of interesting production-wise to me. You know, I, whether or not it was necessary, I don't know, but I found it interesting uh, to hear. Yeah, it, it, I actually wrote that it looks like it, it should be in a David Lynch knockoff movie. Oh, like David yeah, Lynch would yeah. get the original, but then the person trying to imitate David Lynch and make it more commercial would get this version. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is kind of a camp interpretation of the song, yeah. right? From, from Axel's improv, yep, we're fucked, <laughs> to uh, the fact that there's a, a third verse that on the original is sung in falsetto that yeah. axel sings in his full voice that high which is on one <laughs> hand technically impressive that he can sing that high in his full voice back then uh but man that i mean it's it's so high it just rips your ears right off and i i think that that is another hint that they are not intending the song to be taken a hundred percent seriously but for a doo-wop song, apparently the guy that wrote it kind of wrote it at various stoplights while he was trying to get over a, a broken heart and whatnot. And I think it's actually lyrically a little bit more interesting than than your average doo-wop song. Mm -hmm. So I could I could see why uh, it, it had that appeal for a guy like Axel. Okay. You can't you can't throw a rock in Pittsburgh without seeing the Skyliners live at some point. So. Mm -hmm. They're almost like oh, background. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know if it's like all of them the same anymore, but it's like at least the one guy is still going around singing. So have you seen them live? I've seen, yeah, I saw them live at like a 3WS oldies show, like maybe 20 years ago. And then I saw them again, like downtown once, just playing in Market Square, maybe 10 And did they play ago. the song? I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, it's, you know, I was unfamiliar with the catalog. 
There, my father-in-law is a huge doo-wop fan, like literally like absolutely out of control doo-wop fan. And he is, interestingly enough, he is very much like us. He has this encyclopedic knowledge of music, but it's all music like pre-1965. So ah, it's really interesting yeah. to talk to him because he can like, there's a radio station that broadcasts out of Millvale. It's like this literally squeezing out, you know, 10 watts out of Millville that plays nothing but, you know, 40s or 50s and 60s oldies or whatever. And he is, I mean, it's amazing to watch him listen to this. Like he knows everything about all the bands and, you know, all that kind of stuff, knows all the words. It's really, it's really cool, actually. So he would, he would be, he needs to do a podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, that's a real, like, you know, scene in, in that way because, you know, there are bands like Pure Gold and uh, we had mentioned uh, bands like Diamond Rio uh, in previous uh, podcasts when it comes to the Kids Alive stuff. And Frank Zuri, who was in Diamond Rio, later sang as one of the singers in uh, the Skylanders as well. And also yeah. Frank also sang with Pure Gold. So, you know, again, there's that sort of click of, you know, this genre of music where those players and singers are interchangeable in a way and then they keep music going for them. Very good. New Rose. Uh, I actually, the well, this makes me want to talk about The Damned more than it does the song. The song's good. It's punky, great, love song. Um, I like the Damned version. The Damned is a band that I've always wanted to get into, but have never have. Like, there are people that are, like, super Damned fans. And to me, The Damned has always sounded like Billy Idol, like pop punk. Um, and I feel like I'm totally, you know what I mean? Like, or almost the way that um, Joe Jackson sounds like, you know, takes punk, the punk aesthetic and sort of smartens it up a little bit. The Damned have always seemed like that to me, like a little too smart to really be punks. Um, if that makes sense. So uh, it's interesting because this song actually kind of kicks ass and I kind of like it. And now I want to go back and be like, Maybe I read the damned wrong all the time. You know what I mean? Mm. So I don't know. So yeah, it's I mean it's it's a fine, punky little great fast song. I, I like, you know, I like listening to it. This is the first Guns N' Roses album since Appetite for Destruction that doesn't feel like a um feel like homework. You know what I mean? Because these are all great <laughs> songs. You know, they're all they really picked all the good ones. So good, Mike, what do you think? I dig it because this is uh, Duff doing the lead vocals, right? It's it's a cool track. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, because he, yeah. he, he does at least two or three on, on this album, and, and that's refreshing to hear. And in a way, it would have been cooler if, you know, I like his voice. It's different. You know, it's like, it, it's not necessarily great in terms of like a, you know, a lead singer kind of thing, but it adds another dimension, and I enjoy hearing it. Um, but then again, too, it, it's really just like, you know, I don't want to say textbook in, in a bad way, but like there's, there's one, four, five, you know, blues, and there's punk rock, and there's these descending chord changes that are chromatic and stuff. And this is like, it's such a collection of great punk rock riffs in one song. It, it's got so much energy. It, it's so, it's refreshing to hear, especially after the illusion albums in a way. You know, it's, it's, it's much more in your face and um, it's you know, much more in the moment. And it, again, it seems like the guys are having fun recording in, in the same room together. And I like the energy that comes across on this track. I, I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, it's ultimately a song about the thrill of newfound love and and uh, 
you know, I think th they convey the, the song well. I don't think that it's radically different than the original, mm -hmm. but, you know, they, they do a, a good job of capturing the spirit. Um, down on the farm. Uh, the guy that introduced me to UK subs was a dishwasher at a Bate seafood restaurant when Ooh. I was like 17 and would play it all the time. And we, he would run the dishwasher and I'd de-vein shrimp, which is really just a nice word for pulling out the poop thing in them. Um, and that's, so it's funny. I really know this song, but I never got a UK subs album or anything like that. I just listened to him one summer, like all summer long. And I, I remember they were, um, they had that sort of British funny punk vibe. You know what I mean? Their songs were all sort of very serious and intense, but they had like down on the farm is almost borderline jokey, but not really. Um, so um, I like that the only thing that stands, so it's pretty good. It's just a better produced version of the UK subs version. You know what I mean? With like vocals that aren't as, you know, raspy. Um, I like the guitar part at the front, like the way that I guess, I don't know what Slash is doing there, but he's doing kind of a neat little lead line that's almost like a low, I can't even explain it. Like Mike, maybe you can better, but there's a really neat sort of lead line at the beginning of it. Yeah, he's doing so, kind of almost like a tapping uh, the pick against the strings harmonica kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I, I kind of dug that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. It's a good, you know, again, it's a good song done by the UK subs and now Guns N' Roses. So what do you think, Mike? I, I love it. I love that you know, from the minute they performed it at Farm Aid a few years prior to this being released. I thought it was, again, for you know, we mentioned before how, how funny I thought it was when they performed this on the Farm Aid, like down the farm, you know, Farm Aid. Like, <laughs> it's somehow similarly insulting that could be. But nonetheless, it, it, it kicks ass. It, it's a great track. Um, you know, and the, the lyric content, content is, you know, to me, hilarious. Um, but interesting, too, um, You've got actors who are doing like a British accent in a way. You do. It, which is the only time he, you know, he sort of does it on the script, which I guess is appropriate because all the other bands other than they cover are pretty much bands from the US, right? Yeah, Suja, Dolls, yeah, well, T-Rex, whatever. Yeah, but anyhow, I, I love it. I love the energy of it. And I loved it from the minute they played it from Farm Aid. And um, I'm glad that they committed to, you know, to buying the CD because it's one of my favorite tracks in this record. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I guess the grass is always greener on the other side. Bands like Aerosmith seem to romanticize the country and <laughs> life. And that is one thing that I always appreciate about Guns N' Roses is that they are this unapologetically uh, lovers of urban city life. <laughs> and, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I remember my grandmother who grew up on a farm telling me that the one thing that she was sure of uh, that she wanted to do with her life was no matter what happened, she was going to make sure that she never ended up living on a farm because it sucked. Yeah. It was a lot of hard backbreaking work and it was boring as hell. And I think that's what, you know, what this song captures and captures it well. Human Being by the New York Dolls. I hate Axel's vocal on it. It ruins it. I went out and I listened to the original and I don't, I don't like the way Axel did it. But again, you know, it's an in-your-face, nice little punk rocker or whatever. But, um, you know, it's a good song done by Guns N' Roses. So I just don't like Axel's vocal on it. Mike, what do you think? Um, I kind of, 
I mean, I can't really speak to Axel's vocal, but I think energy-wise and performance-wise, it's stronger performance than the Dolls did. I think it was done too much too soon, their second record, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just comes across in a more energetic way. It's, it's a better presentation. You know, again, no disrespect to the Dolls, you know, but, you know, that album, they, you know, the Dolls were kind of falling apart. They're lucky, I think they, they're lucky they got the record out. But um, I like the energy of this. I think it's a great performance. And um, again, there's a lot of great guitar work from Slash. And, you know, if, if, my, if I have any sort of critique, um, it, it kind of goes on a little too long. You know, like, a, you know, it's like the Dolls were never like, super interesting in terms of come up with you know dynamic different parts of songs like once they got a part down like a verse and the chorus and they repeated it that was it you know and you get that and you kind of get to the point where you're like okay i've heard this verse i've heard this chorus you know does it need to go on for you know seven minutes long i don't think so but but it does yeah i think this is an interesting song because on one hand it's sort of the rock and roll cliche of you know, oh, you're going off with somebody else, but you'll never find another man like me. But it does it from the perspective of you're going to find some plastic machine boy and I'm really real. Mm. And if I have faults, you know, yeah, of course I have faults, but only because I'm human. Right. And, mm. you know, so and being human to air is human and and whatnot. But that's why it's so great to be with me because I'm, you know, warm and loving and unpredictable whatever and i think that this is a great song but the dolls were better songwriters than they were performers or musicians Mm. or singers Mm -hmm. and on paper it seems like if you have guys that are as good as axl rose and slash playing on the song Mm -hmm. that should make this song that much better in its presentation Mm -hmm. and yet there's something about it that just goes over my head and doesn't work for me. I don't know if it's just a little too fast hmm. or maybe it's the wrong key for Axel, but you, you know, like on paper, I think this, hmm. would, this would be a great choice for them. It just doesn't quite work for me in execution. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, well, I mean, you know, we talk about you know, the mix and, and the sonic you know, aspect of this record. I think this one at least has a more bottom end to it in a way. It sounds a little fuller. Yeah. Um, you know, I agree it could be a little too fast in terms of the tempo, but, um, you, know, to, you know, I don't know. To me, it works. Like, I, I think the production on this might be even better than what's on, you know, too much too soon in a way. And I think, I don't know, that's why, oh, yeah. you, know, you know, I mean, again, nothing against, you know, production on you know, Dolls Out and but, yeah, I, I think agree. attitude wise, attitude wise, it's in perfect alignment with Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the lyrics are, are great. I just, you know, I, I think it's a little too fast for Axel to sell it, I think is is what the problem boils down to. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Raw power. This is a better, I mean, the beauty of the Stooges records is that they are so primitive. So this is just a very produced version of that. Um, So I am at a loss. Like this this one, I wouldn't have done it the way that they did it because so someone's going to go out and find a Stooges record and be like, oh, my God, this doesn't sound anything like the Stooges. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because the Stooges, I mean, the Stooges are like all over the place. 
I mean, you have to you have to be in a special place to listen to the Stooges. I mean, I know that like the Stooges are like one of those bands that are like rock and roll royalty. You know what I mean? If you, you know, and it's it's almost like this, like, if you don't like the Stooges, then you don't like music. You know what I mean? Like you don't understand rock and roll. And there's days that I hate the Stooges. And there's days where I'm just right in the right place. You know what I mean? Where a Stooges song will come on and I'll be like, yes, this is exactly how I feel. You know what I mean? So it's, um, so again, I don't, it's a, it was a, it's a risky move to do a Stooges cover because they have such a definitive sound that like, why would you want to mess with that? Like the, their timbre, the timbre of a, of a, of a Stooges song should never be attempted to be created or recreated. You know what I mean? Because it, there's so much stuff in there that it doesn't even matter about what as what's actually being played. It's like just the feeling that you get that you're in a, you know, dark room, you know, a poorly lit room with guys that have just managed to cobble up enough money to like record this and then actually think it's good enough to release it. You know what I mean? So it's, it's almost like, why would you bother doing that? But then that's my, that's my problem also with the next song. But go ahead, Mike, what do you think? Um, I think it definitely captures you know the energy of, of what the students are doing. Um, you know, if you listen to the students' catalog, like they were signed by Electra, right? So you had like the sort of you know those sort of like psychedelic kind of roots in a way. And I think at the time that the students were signed, at the same time the MC5 were signed, I think the students right. might have been considered like you know, their, their sister or brother band in a way. And like even yeah, Alice Cooper was part of that whole scene, right? Yeah, it's all, it's all part of the you know, the Michigan scene, and it, it, it's. It's a cool thing, but I agree. It's like you know, those albums, you know, it's you've got to develop a taste for those records because you know some people either love it or they hate it. And it's, it's funny because you have bands like the Stooges and MC5 and New York Dolls, and they have so much mystique and they're so spoken about in, in, the, in the music community. But like they've all got like two or three albums, and that's their catalog, you know, <laughs> yeah. in terms of the important stuff, you know, but that somehow works for them. But at the same time, too, I agree with you, John. Like you can't really capture the sonics of the Stooges record because it's it is so kind of like primitive and I think what they're trying to do is capture to do live but down you know because the only time I've ever seen the Stooges um was probably like 2004 or 5 when they played the Will Turner I think Mike Watt was playing bass you know uh, it was really? cool yeah it was a really cool show and I thought oh that's what, that's what the Stooges is about to see them live is where you get it but on the record you know right you might not get it and I agree the reason I bring this up John is I agree like if you're not, you know, if you got to do something different with it, otherwise you're never going to sound like the Stooges on, on those, those early records. Right. Yeah. The, the sound in itself is the is the selling point to the song, not the actual song. Yeah. Because you know what I mean, I know that sounds, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, but it's like no, it does. Yeah. It's it, it the, does. Because yeah, they're basically a rock trio with a singer. And how do you make that sound bigger? You add really reverb to things, make it sound like there's more. You know, but it, you can tell that like there were it's like three guys in the studio recording that album. And you know, the producer's like, okay, let's make this sound bigger than it is. You know, does that work? Yeah, but does it sound like them live? I I did I don't think so because seeing them yeah, live. Yeah, there's a there's later, a live album. There's a live album that just came out recently that's him at a like biker bar, like within two inches of being knifed the whole night. You know what I mean? And so of course he's like baiting the audience, you know what I mean? Because yeah. there are people there to actually see him. Yeah. And that's the stooges. You know what I mean? Like that's where it's um 
you know, where it's a, you know, where, where you get that feeling that raw, you know, that energy that is so yeah. it's, I mean, it's like, and it's like raw energy coming off of a garbage monster. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's like coming out of a, yeah, I don't know how to explain it, but it's, it's definitely their own thing. And, and I would never attempt, I would never get in a band and say, you know what we need to do? We need to cover the studios. Like I would never do that. Yeah, because most people do, I want to be your dog or whatever, but I think this is in the third record, right? This is in the album with uh, James Williamson playing guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's right, and then, but then he goes on to do, you know, Lust for Life and I'm a Passenger and, oh, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff where he's, and he married a girl from Pittsburgh. Did you know that? Didn't know that, no. Yeah, his actually, uh, David, do you remember Jane Alou? Yeah. Okay, her sister is married to Iggy Pop. Wow. Yeah, small yeah. world okay, okay. Oh, it's <laughs> um yeah i i think iggy was always known for being like a, a, an unbelievably electrifying unpredictable uh high energy performer he wasn't necessarily known as a great songwriter per se i mean he was known as a guy who came up with some great lyrics here and there uh that were you know kind of ahead of their time in some ways but um you know it was more about the power of their live performances and the unpredictability which is kind of ironic because i think this is a song that's sort of about <laughs> that that kind of power itself um but you know mike you and i have had that experience where we've seen unbelievably great punk bands live like i'm thinking of the toilet boys yeah you know, where they just blow you away yeah. and then you go home and you listen to the record and you go, huh, hmm. yeah, this is not what that, what I just experienced. Like there's there's a problem translating that onto the grooves of a record somehow. Yeah, I, I get chills just thinking about that show that we saw that was the Cougar. That was badass. It was 98, I think, right? It was a great show. They killed me to get the record. Like, oh, you know, the energy's just not there. It's not the same thing, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that kind of reels you in. Like you got to go see the band live, and they keep them going. But you want the record to be just as strong, not stronger than the performance. Yeah. So, yeah, but to wrap it up with Iggy, man, I, you know that show that I saw at the Wilpern with the Stooges. I mean, as they were coming on stage, you know, stage right, he was Iggy was like jumping up and down. You could tell he was like jumping, ready to go, waiting to get on stage, and like you know, waiting for the warmers to be done. He was just, it was like boom, and he came out on stage, and he had so much energy. It was so great. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it, it's an experience seeing those guys, and um, you know, there's a great documentary uh, about them that came out about four or five years ago. And, and the thing I respect about Iggy is, you know, he always I think as a matter of fact, he started out as a drummer. Um, he he got a drum set and he, he rehearsed like in, in his parents' house, had like a bedroom with only drums in the place. And but, you know, his lyric approach is you know, say it with as few words as possible. You know, like no fun, no fun. No fun, you know, but but that works. There's a lot of space, so you know, hats off to people that can, you know, get a message across in, in a few words and uh, with energy at the same time. So bravo. Yeah. All right. Ain't it fun? Originally done by the Dead Boys, who are not from Pittsburgh but are from Cleveland. <laughs> um, I I had a um. This was for like about maybe four or five months in college. This was the cassette that I would not put down. And it wasn't, 
actually ain't it fun is on an album that doesn't have a lot of their great songs like sonic reducer is on one album so i had this like mm. mixtape of like um dead voice songs that i adored you know what i mean but again this falls into i mean it's at the guns and roses does it fine like i get the vibe you know it's a more well-produced version of this song but Axel doesn't have the same mm. nihilistic vocal delivery as the guy from the Dead Boys does. And that's what makes the song great. You know what I mean? Like he, they, there's even a line, you know, which is totally like rude. It's like when you call someone the C word, ain't it fun? Mm. You know, and when right. you hear the guy from the Dead Boys say it, you're just like, wow. Like that's you know what I mean like that's just like you know ain't it fun knowing you're gonna die you know and, and it really gets to you but the Guns N' Roses version just doesn't you know it doesn't have that same feeling for me like the Dead Boys did because they seem so I remember hearing them being like this this is the stuff you listen to when the world is ending you know what I mean like that you know, does that make sense you know what I mean whereas with Guns N' Roses I'm like whatever this is what I listen to when I'm drinking a beer at a barbecue. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't match the same delivery that the original does. Sorry, go ahead, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think in terms of the, the vocal approach, you know, it definitely got a different range. You know, it doesn't sound as full as the original version. And in a way, it's probably, I want to say, probably my least favorite song on the album because it just, it, kind of drags, you know, punk rock doesn't have to be all you know, high energy, it can be kind of dramatic like this one is, but it's kind of depressing in a way, you know, I don't really, you know, I don't find myself saying I want to listen to this track or listen to this record, it doesn't really stand out to me as something that I necessarily enjoy. Um, I think it's cool they bring in Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks um, to do some of the, you know, the, the, the beeline vocals and stuff, that's cool. Um, yeah, but it's just kind of, I don't know, there's, there's like that sort of negative side of punk rock that I've never really gotten. You know, like, I, you know, I don't, the thing I never got about them, the few punk rock shows I've been to is like, you know, the negative vibe. Like, you don't need to necessarily go to a show and get into a fight and bump into somebody. You, know, you can enjoy music in a way. You know, it's like, this, you know, sounds to me like somebody that's, that's just so like wrapped up in what, what they're going on with in life and, you know, you know, woe is me kind of thing. And I don't, I don't, to me, that's, that's not a fun song. That's not something I want to really. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I, I and the Dead Boys version encapsulates that feeling, which we've all maybe felt at some point. Well, maybe not, yeah. anyway, but, well, but you know, know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why yeah. I like it so much. <laughs> yeah, they, they get that they get that vibe, whereas the Guns N' Roses version doesn't necessarily get that vibe. But yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, this one, I think, you know, we talked about, you know, the sort of pretense and the, uh, you know, the, you know, the forethought, you know, with you know, the stuff in the Illusion records. And I think this is something where they maybe try a little too hard compared to the rest of the stuff in this record. All right, I'm going to okay. be the contrarian here. I actually really like this version of this song. I think this is an example of them making good on the promise to take a song from a relatively obscure band and performing it better than that band is actually capable of and making it a little bit more palatable to the masses. This is actually one of my favorite tracks. I mean, it is undisputably a very very dark song yeah. um and i wasn't listening to the original dead boys but i was aware of them only because uh 
there was a cover of the Twisted Tales comic book that Dave Stevens illustrated where they had a zombie uh, in an embrace with this Elvira looking punk rocker and he had a tattoo on his shoulder that said the dead boys and that prompted me to look them up and in, investigate them so I'll I'll just uh, I'll just say actually this is probably one of my top three tracks on the album okay okay all right Buck McCain slash big dumb sex uh, I like the way they took they they realized that there was a something between the you know the Soundgarden had really just rewritten Buck McCain <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean I like the way that they tied it together um, but other than that I mean it's it's good I mean I like again I like Mark Bolan I like T Rex you know that kind of stuff it's kind of cool um, and I, I it it is interesting how they sort of I don't know if they're sort of taking the piss at Soundgarden or whatever but. Um, you know, it's it's a good song. I don't know. I didn't look up the original of either of them, um, but that's. I mean, really, I got nothing to say about it. It just kind of sounded fine. You know, there was nothing that really stood out to me, or nothing that was really terrible about it. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, you know if you listen to the sort of the, the electric um, T Rex stuff, I think the the sort of magic on, on those albums is you know, the simplicity. You know, in terms of the riffs, there's a lot of space, and there's not a whole lot of like, oh, this is wild, it's amazing lead guitar playing, or you know, there's not a lot. You know, it's basically like the band in a room doing their thing and you know, production and make, taking everything out of that. Um, but I think I thought it was cool that uh, Slash sort of like enhanced the fact that this is sort of like a Hendrix kind of band, a Gypsy's kind of riff. You know, it's kind of like an R&B riff, and he added some wah wah guitar, and I think that works. Um, and I, you know. I too kind of question you know the segue into the you know the sound garden you know tune. I mean, yes, they're similar riffs and it kind of works in a way, but uh, you know, I, I mean maybe you know it, maybe where they're going with this was you know maybe the original song had to go somewhere else, you know, in their perspective. You know, maybe T-Rex song was too simple, let's do something else with it and have it go somewhere else. I mean, that's that's my take on it. But um, you know, bottom line is okay, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but I like the fact that you know, Slash sort of puts a little soul, you know, on on you know a band, you know, T Rex, which wasn't necessarily you know the most soulful band, um, you know, at the time. They were they were they were glam. They were, you know, which was the furthest thing from soul. You, you can know? go down a, a T Rex rabbit hole like nobody's business. Like yeah. I, I did that a few years ago. There's lots of great stuff from him that you don't even realize because you hear bang a gong, you know, 9,000 times, you know, on DVE and then you never really realize that there's so yeah, much there's there. the whole, uh, yeah, and thank goodness they didn't do you know, the 20th century boy, you know, thing you know, that everybody's done, you know, so, which is a great song, but hey, you know, good for them. I think one of the things that they said in this record is, you know, a good song can be found anywhere, go seek out the original. Mm. That was one of the bylines in, in the liner notes. So, you know, right on. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a great, riff and um it's a cool song like a two-minute little glam song if there's any criticism of the original it is that it doesn't really go anywhere Mm -hmm. and so they gave it a place to go you know whether or not that was a good place for it to go i don't know i mean i I listened to the original big dumb sex today and boy boy is it awkward when a grunge band tries to write like uh you know a fuck me suck me like rock and roll song because it's so 
it's like so self-conscious it's just so awkward and like it's like somebody trying to film a sex scene in a movie and they're so jaded and self-aware of what they're doing that they just can't bring themselves to do it in any kind of straightforward way so like a song that like kiss or aerosmith could write in their sleep becomes this painfully contorted thing this like weird awkward monster of a song that just is really too it needs to be put out of its misery but <laughs> it is interesting that chris cornell is the one kind of modern reference that they hit on this record and certainly a terrific singer so yeah yeah, I, yeah, I would put this one as in terms of one of my favorites on this record. I mean, it's it's kind of comes and goes, and it's not as extreme as other stuff on the record. All right, hair of the dog. Um, that's uh, give me two seconds. Sorry about that. My wife was getting ice out of the cooler. Um, okay, so um, this is one of my favorite songs on DVE. When they would play it when I was a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, they're playing this song. Nazareth has always been sort of a guilty, not even guilty pleasure, like a secret pleasure, because I don't really, I don't think I've ever owned a Nazareth album, but there's lots of Nazareth songs that I like. Um, so it's a, I, I think it's kind of at least a creative or interesting choice, but it's also like, you know, it's my favorite DVE hit, you know? So it's, it's almost like, it's a classic rock song, but it's uh, almost a left field classic rock song. It's not one the DVE plays every day, you know? So, um, so yeah, I, I actually like them a lot. Good, Mike, what do you think? I think it's, it's cool on a, a number of uh, levels because I think obviously I think uh, one of the guys that had worked with Nazareth had worked on early demos with Guns um, before Appetite, and um, you know I, I've always thought that um, Axel kind of sounded like the singer in, in Nazareth, and it seems like an appropriate choice to me. Um, and also from the guitar perspective, and you, know, one of the things that Slash does well in addition to playing badass and bluesy you know, lead guitar is uh, playing a, a talk box. You know, and in Slash, between Slash and uh, Jeff Beck, they're two of the only guys I've ever seen. How, like, how in the hell would you try to get feedback out of a talk box? But they do it. You know, it's yeah, like how they, do you yeah, do that? I mean, it's the weirdest thing. Like, they'll, they'll play the note and cuff the, you know, the microphone and, and, the, and the tube, and all of a sudden you get, like, this feedback loop in, like, this two-inch space. I don't know how they do that, but, like, it's badass. But, you know, I, I digress. I... This has always been one of those songs as a kid. It's always been kind of scary in a way. It's got a haunting kind of vibe. It's got a cool, almost like a day tripper thing, which I think they, you know, they do allude to it uh, at the end of the song. Yes, so musically they play the riff. You're kind of breaking up. Um, for, for guns to cover because yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's 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 the go-to choice for guns to, to do a, a cover song in this record. I think it works for them. Oh, whoa, whoa. Sorry, did you see that? Uh, yeah, there's a little uh, brown out there. Yeah, okay. It's hot in the valley today. So anyhow, I, I think it works. I think this is one of the strongest tracks on the record, and um, it's an it's, it's appropriate choice for them to do, and I think it, it, they deliver. Okay. 
Yeah, this isn't one of my favorite songs. Uh, I'll just be the contrarian again. I, I do think that this song is probably on every single jukebox in every uh, shit kicker, blue collar bar in Indiana. Where hey, buddy, watch it, because now you're dealing with Axel son of a bitch, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so I believe that this, you know, this does go back to his roots and that he has a you know, the song means something to him. I just think that, you know, it, it, it kind of ventures into that sort of generic, like bar band, like, yeah. cover song sort of thing where, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere at the end. I mean, the chorus gets real redundant and very white by the end and, yeah. and they kind of try to get over that by like speeding it up yeah which takes it somewhere but i don't know that it, it still kind of gets a bit monotonous after a while just my two cents no i mean I'm like not... i said it's it's whatever it's a dv staple you know yeah it's a classic it's a rock cl staple. classic rock staple for sure yeah 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 attitude um I wrote a great song. It's actually one of the ones that I feel is sort of true to the original. Um, I mean, just a, you know, a little better produced than the than the Misfits version. Um, you know, I mean, again, this is this is literally like if you held up a, a you know, before you got into your freshman year of college, you're like, oh, you put on your Hogwarts sorting hat, and they'd be like, you're going to be one of the punks. Here are the songs you're supposed to listen to. And they would throw, they would give you attitude and they would give you, you know what I mean? Like that's how, here's a couple of Joy Division records. <laughs> now you're one of us. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems like this is like such a sort of, I mean, it's not a well-known Misfits song. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't, I can't think of like really remembering except maybe hearing it once or twice or whatever, but um, whatever. I mean, it's true to the original. It does, it does a decent job. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I personally found like you know, the versions they did uh, live on the, the later uh, legs of the Illusion tours were a little more interesting in a way, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. How was it different? Well, it just it seemed to be a little more off the cuff in a way, you know, like mm. much like when Metallica around that time was like play like a, a cover song. He's like, okay, you're not playing a Metallica song, you're gonna play a song that I'm not really familiar with, but it seems interesting enough for me to you know to enjoy in a way. But it just seemed a little more, I don't know. I mean. I think they're thinking a bit on this track, you know, whereas live, they were kind of letting it feel, you know, in a live way and kind of riffing it out. In, 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 I see in what you're saying. Yeah. yeah you know, a less analytical, analytical way in a way, but you know, it, it's cool. I mean, it's, you know, enough, again, I, I dig his voice. I think, you know, it's going to make me revisit some of the stuff even later with uh, his solo records and with uh, the albums that he was loaded, you know, you know, I think he's a cool guy. I think he's got a cool voice and, um, you know, this is for the forbear of you know some of the stuff he's gonna do later. So, so, so be it. Yeah, I I appreciate the fact that it's catchy as hell and it's incredibly high energy. Um, it's also very misogynistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, if you if you actually look at the lyrics, which you know, it just to go, goes to show, I guess that hard rock did not have a total lock on misogyny. So there's a part of me that you know in the at 50 years old in the 21st century looks at it and goes, ah, you know, they're kind of implying that if this 
girl doesn't shut up, he's going to, like, hit her so hard she falls down on the floor. You know, probably not the most positive message to be sending out there in the world, but the energy and the attitude make it work nonetheless. And it's Glenn Danzig. I mean, I always I actually... Glenn Dan I mean, the argument would be that Glenn Danzig is a poser. You know what I mean? Like, he was... I don't, I don't know if that's actually true, but I've always gotten that vibe from him. Um, so, I don't know. Well, you, they do that all in, in a minute, 27 seconds. So, you know. Yeah, that's true. Right, right. Yeah, Glenn Danzig, it's funny. Uh, I remember reading an interview with him in the LA Weekly where he was talking about the problem with the world is that everybody can't just suck it up and everybody complains too much about everything and I was reading this and I was saying yeah okay maybe he has a point there's something to be said for that I suppose and then like two paragraphs later in the same interview he's complaining about how traffic in LA sucks so bad you know <laughs> and I go or maybe he just doesn't really have a self-aware perspective at all you know <laughs> like Glenn, Glenn Danza I mean you've seen you've all seen the Northside Kings punch out right have you seen the video of him getting punched out backstage? Oh, I think I have. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I mean, there's just something about Glenn Danzig that rubs me the wrong way. And I always get the, uh, what was some random dude I was in a band with was like, Glenn Danzig looks like he's always about to rip the neck right off of his guitar because he's so built. It's like he looks so angry. So I don't what know. What was the classic Beavis and Butt headline about Glenn Danzig? You know, for such a tough, buff-looking dude, he sure sings like a wuss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, now that we've destroyed Glenn Danzig. Just kidding, Glenn. We Just love kidding, you, actually. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, I know, I know a guy that plays drums with him. And he's, he, he's said on occasion, he's, you know, you've got you to work around him, you know? So, yeah, yeah, and you mean. know he's a comic book guy, so we gotta love Glenn Danzig. Yeah, right. Yeah, true. Good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, Black leather. Okay, this is the one song I assume this is Steve Jones who sings this, right? Steve Jones. Although interestingly enough, Joan Jett gets a co-write. Okay, is this is Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols? It is one and the same. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, because I did not know this song at all. Never heard it, um, but it actually really kind of rocks hard, and, and the lead that um, Slash plays at the front is really well done. Like, I really like this song. This is the one song on the album that I did not know, and I actually liked it quite a bit. So... Um, and I like that lead part that Slash pay, plays at the beginning. So, Mike, what did you think? Yeah, I dig it too for the, for the reason of the, you know, the lead guitar playing. But it's, well, I didn't realize it was a band uh, that were named The Professionals, which was a you know, post-Sex uh, Pistols band uh, that Steve Jones had. Um, right. One of the other guys from The Pistols. But then also, too, uh, flash forward to a band by the name of Neurotic Exciters, uh, Neurotic Outsiders, which I think Duff was in and Steve Jones, and I think, Oh, I think one of the guys from Duran Duran. Man, it was an you know, interesting kind of record. It's a well-produced album that was put out probably like '95 or so. But I, again, I never heard of the Professionals, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek it out. I've never heard of them or anything. Yeah. I, mean, I guess that makes me. Apparently, something was missed in my intro to 
punk rock in college or whatever. But. Yeah, I mean, there's always those, you know, long lost, you know, great rock records or punk records, and it's like one of them. But at, at the same time, I think there's there's a soul to this this track. I mean, there's a, there's a bottom end to it, and there's a warmth to it. That I, I dig. It's kind of spooky in a way, and I buy into it. I, I like just you know the, the approach and the production. Um, it, it's it's one of my favorites. You know, if I had to choose like a top five from this record, it's more one of those five for sure. Which got yeah, a, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm the same way. It really kind of rocks out, but maybe it's because I just haven't heard it and I've got nothing to compare it to. But yeah, and I love the you know the the, the conflict of like you know maybe I shouldn't have called Black Weather. <laughs> maybe that was the wrong decision for the day. <laughs> but uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's definitely you said spooky. I would say atmospheric. Yeah, uh, and and it's a monster groove. Yeah, uh, which you know only made more so by the players and guns uh, mm -hmm. when when compared to the original. I mean, you know, it it, it is kind of uh, I don't know. It's always weird to me when when rock guys sort of write about being the bottoms in S&M relationships <laughs> with women, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, which yeah. is essentially what this is if yeah. you read between the lines, but whatever gets you through the night yeah. and, you know, <laughs> it's a strong track for sure. Yeah. And that's subject too, Dave, you know, I, you know, looking at the liner notes of the record, you've got, you know, the cool photos and stuff, you know, the band and you know, whatever garb. And there's a ton of like, you know, thank yous and credits and stuff, but like, if you're going to try to sell us on the concept of, of a cover tune, then give us the lyrics. It'd be fun to read those lyrics in a way. But maybe there's like a copyright thing. You can't print the lyrics of the song you're covering. You've got to buy additional rights to do that. But it would have been cool to see that. Yeah. In the fact. Yeah, yeah. You know, so oh, yeah, good point. Mm. Yeah. All right. You can't put your arms around a memory. Uh, I feel like I should like this song more than I don't. I mean... It's, uh, I wrote my notes say, good song, not great. And I know that the, you know what I mean? And I, I did, I don't like the original. I don't, there's a lot of stuff by Johnny Thunders that I know it's sacrilege to say that you don't like everything Johnny Thunders has done, but there's a lot of stuff Johnny Thunders has done that I don't like. Um, and this is one of them. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, the original version is, there's sort of, there's like an innocence to in a way that comes across, whereas this version, it, it seems like a heartfelt you know, tribute to that, but it doesn't really do it on the same level. I, I wouldn't say it does. But you know, the cool thing is, I think I mean, this is a track where you, you got stuff to and everything's really cool, like your vocals, your guitar, and bass, and drums, and you know, it's basically like a Duff solo track in a way to that extent. But uh, I mean, I get the idea of like wanting to cover like a Johnny tune, but I mean, should this be the one? I don't. Yeah, why not Chinese rocks? I mean, really, seriously, they're all freaking heroin addicts. Why not do Chinese rocks? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's just like that weird, like, you know, outro where he's like, you know, kind of like talking to Johnny, you know, like he's like in, in the stratosphere. Like, that seemed a little weird to me, but whatever. You know, it, I mean, you know, if you're a fan of somebody, you're a fan of somebody, and you cover their song and you feel that strong about it, then, then give it your all. And I think Duff did that, and, you know. Better him than, than a lot of people that's in cover, you know, trying to understand. Yeah. Okay. Once again, to be the contrary, <laughs> I really like this song. I really like this version of the song. I think there's a poignancy on the original that Duff hits on and expands upon because it's also kind of a tribute to Johnny Thunders who died. 
by the time this record was being made. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I do take your point that it gets a little weird at the end where he seems to be just talking extemporaneously and having some weird out of body experience where he's talking about what color were her eyes oh she wore shades okay i see now like i don't i don't know what that is like we're going down a weird road on the outro there where where i'm like you know it's some bizarre spoken word out of body experience that i think might have been better left on the cutting room floor but overall i dig this track a lot okay i don't care about you can't go wrong with a fear song. I think they up, did they try and update it with like lyrics about LA? Because I know that they, in the beginning. No, there's actually lyrics about LA in the original. Yeah. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Then mm -hmm. never yeah. mind. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's a fine song. I mean, it made me go back and listen to fear the record again. Cause I like it. Um, so, I mean, you, like I said, you can't go wrong with a fear song. I mean, they're, they're true to the original. Um, everything's, yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can't get it. I can't get super excited about it because I would just listen to the original, which I, I did. And I actually introduced Jack to fear, um, you know, which was good, but that's really about, you know, it, there was nothing that amazing about it. It's just, you know, the original's better and it comes on that whole, you know, that whole album of great songs. So I don't know, Mike. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, overall, my my perspective in terms of you know, analyzing this record was you know pay less attention to the original versions and just appreciate you know what this version is you know and, and it works in that way because if you start to compare the two, then you're going down a rabbit hole you really shouldn't you know go down. But uh, you know, I think it's a great closer. I think the fact that you've got lyrics you know that you know, pertain to L.A. It's a great way to sort of you know bookend you know, the album in a way and. Um, it works. It's a good. It's a good version of the song. And again, you've got such a, you know, the, you know the sad thing about the, you know this album is the fact that you've got a lineup now that really was becoming solid. You've got a great rhythm section. You've got you know, uh, Slash and Gilby playing great rhythm guitar together, and Slash is great lead guitar playing. And Axel sounds like Axel of, the, of that era. But then, like, where did they go from here? It was years you know, after this that they did something again. But with you know maybe like a third of the guys that were in this line, which really could have been the launching pad for a great record by which would have been, you know, well-rehearsed band. Um, so now they didn't pull behind. And, you know, I, you, know mm -hmm. you hate to say it was a fad or it was a, it was a passing thing, but like maybe they were, but, you know, still, it was, still sounds like a band that was, you know, having fun in the studio, playing in the same room at the same time and having a common vision and, you know, where it went from there, you know, you know, it just took a year for us to figure out and a year for us to find out where we were going to go. But I think it's, it, you know, back to the song itself, I think it's, it's a great version of the tune, you know, which also leads into the, the bonus track, which I'm sure we'll discuss as well. We'll so, get to, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was fully aware of Fear because my sister had introduced me to them and given me the record, so... I, we listened to it for the first time together, I think, at your I parents' so. house, yeah. Yeah, so we were we were already fear fans by by the time this thing came out. Um, but I think that I mean, it's a strong song, you know, about the, the horror and casual of casual indifference to uh, human suffering mm -hmm. in modern society. And I mean, you know, it's a song that is 
as relevant today as it was then, maybe even more so with the shocking rise in homelessness in in this country. And um, so, you know, I think it, it worked well when fear did it. And I think guns does a good version of it as well. That does lead us into the hidden track. Look at your game, girl. I, whatever, I can't get past the, I mean, I, I didn't even really listen to it. I mean, it's like, whatever. Um, it is kind of ridiculous that they would record it. I think David Geffen said it best, or there's an interview with David Geffen where he's like, I don't really understand why they did this. Um, and they really should have been smarter about it. So that's kind of how I am. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to do a, it's, it's incredibly immature to use your position as a rock star, even if you are in your 20s, to be taking a song by Charles Manson that is obviously done for shock value, not because the song's great or whatever, um, to do it. So I don't really, I didn't even bother to really listen to it. I mean, I'm not particularly angry. Like, it almost seems like a cheap shot. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it doesn't even bother me. Um, that they did it because it seems like such a an obvious attempt to shock or to get attention. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, I guess all the money they made from it went to the Tate family anyway. So I suppose that's good. And they took they took it off of subsequent recordings. Um, well, I don't know about that. They said they were going to do that. I'm okay. Not sure yeah. They did yeah. That. Much like the was it the live aid thing? Like, okay, all the money went to you know people in africa well you know it, but anyway, man and the sound man and the yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah so but yeah i mean it just i don't know whatever who cares i mean you know what i mean like literally that's kind of how i was i was sort of like they're obviously doing this to get our attention or to have shock value it doesn't make any sense and again it's really childish i mean to think, I mean, the Ramones used to walk around with like freaking Nazi uniforms on. I mean, there was a short period of time when they would do that. And that was obviously shock, you know, and that was incredibly bad taste. So I'm not saying that like Guns N' Roses is the stupidest band on the planet. Cause I mean, there's other bands that have done equally as stupid, shocking things, but just, just in bad taste. And I would think that they would be smarter, but I don't know what kind of drugs they were on at this point. So what do you think, Mike? Well, I, I, I see two sides. Uh, one is, you know, maybe the, you know, the last thing anybody should do is, you know, associate themselves with anything that Charles Manson did. Um, but at the same time, too, Guns covering you know, a, a song that was you know, supposedly you know, written by Charles Manson you know, is probably less dangerous than what uh, Dennis Wilson did from the Beach Boys, which is basically you take the guy on and have him stay at his house and, to the point where Charles Manson took over Dennis Wilson's house and Dennis was like, you know, I'm moving out of my house and this is getting kind of scary, you know. So, you know, uh, you know but at the same yeah, time, yeah, no, yeah, agreed. yeah, I mean, the last thing you want to do is, you know, try to associate yourself with, with the Manson clan and you know, have it be like a cool thing or maybe even like, you know, a, a joke in a way. But the bottom line is, it's a catchy melody. You know, it almost sounds yeah, like okay. uh, seals, seals of crops or, or bread or you know, what, you know name your you know, certain you know early seventies uh, soft rock uh, you know band name. It, it's a catchy melody, and, and it works okay. as a song on its own. You know, no matter who wrote the song or whoever's you know, associated with the song or where the 
the proceeds went to it's the catching army yeah i i i agree with both of you i think that on one hand it's hard to separate the song from the cultural context mm -hmm. and you know doing anything that furthers the name of charles manson artistically uh is certainly an artistic choice that I would never make in a million years, uh, even if it was the most brilliant song ever written, which this is not. Although I do take your point that I think it is a well-written song. I think it's a good song. So if you can separate that, you know, completely divorce the cultural context mm -hmm. from it, um, the original, like the timing is weird on the original because one, Charles Manson doesn't have the best sense of rhythm. And it sounds like he's playing it and singing it at the same time and it kind of speeds up and slows down as he's doing it. And he's not a particularly good singer. Right. So when Axl Rose plays it, you know, and there's a, the guitar is well played and it's well sung, it does sell the song better than the original so purely from the point of view of did they improve upon the original yes should they have done this song probably not right yeah yeah but then again you know i mean i just had a conversation with my sister about you know guns the other day and you know going back to the first time we all saw the you know live at the ritz you know show and you know that was the first time i think a lot of this also it was it seemed so dangerous in a way, you know, I think that's one of the things that guns, you know, were known for, and we kind of relied on them to be that way, you know. And when they become something else, becomes bloated and pretentious, then you kind of go, well, that's not the guns that I, you know, was initially introduced to in a way. Yeah, you know? I mean, you know, Axel's said in interviews that his defense was kind of like, you know, it was it was meant as kind of a black joke, you know, a dark uh, commentary on the fact that he himself had been kind of compared to Charles Manson. And so, you know, he said, you know, he said, well, if you're going to compare me to him, then let me do his, you know, I'll, I'll do one of his songs, you know, yeah. um, again, is that a mature attitude to take? No, is rock and roll always guilty of, of, of doing the things that it does because of its maturity? <laughs> no. no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's always that. I mean, bands have always done stuff for shock value, you know what I mean? So it's, and I'm sure there's bands that have covered Manson before and, you know, I mean, Marilyn Manson took his last name, for God's sake, you know, it's, right. you know, it's a common thing to, to do is to, you know, when you're in rock and roll to shock as much as you can. Um, yeah. Then again, too, I mean, you know, the idea behind this this album was it, it's a collection of cover tunes, right? So, you know, they covered Charles Manson. They can say they did that. You know, whether or not that sits well with anybody, you know, it's up to us to, you know, to decide. But, you know, maybe there is an artistic value because the song itself, what's behind that in terms of who wrote it, you know, is a whole different subject in a way. And maybe it's not that Absolutely. much of a debate. But either way, I mean, you know, at the same time, too, you could have, there, there are tons of bands that would do cover songs of, you know, any wrote, you know, classic rock song that anybody could have done and it comes across as uninteresting because you heard it so many times you know but here's a here's a band that's saying here's the band like saying okay well, we find this interesting maybe maybe you, you might not have heard this and we're going to give it to you 
and you're going to discover it in a way at the end of the record when I, it's going to title it, you know. So they kind of tuck it in there in a way where if you thought the song was over after you know the fear song, you thought the album's over, you probably turned the thing off. You might have discovered the song until you know years later, and you're like, oh, you need to fall asleep to the thing. Like, oh, what the hell's the last song on the record? It's it's cleverly tucked away in a way for you to discover. I'll buy that. Yeah. All right, final thoughts. Uh, probably not the best album to end on. I mean, I know that Chinese Democracy is technically their next album, um, but this was sort of the dissolution of uh, Guns N' Roses, so it's almost like they're going out with a uh, a whimper, not a bang. Mike? Yeah, from my perspective, I mean, if you take, you know, what, what came after this, um, probably the Gilby Clark, uh, the Cure Me or Kill Me record and uh, Slash of Snake Pit and that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of those guys use some of the same players on this record, but it really would have, would have been interesting to see where this band went with this lineup in terms of writing original material. I think it would have been, you know, the Guns N' Roses that we had gotten used to and were familiar with, and it would have sounded like what we wanted, but we just, we just never got that. And, you know, not until like they got back together and and toured, you know, within the last four or five years. But I think this lineup, I don't know, it's sort of a, you know, they really could have utilized this lineup a lot more than they did beyond this, but it just wasn't, wasn't to be. And I think that's one of the tragic things about this, this lineup and uh, where, what happened in this band. And it would have been interesting to see where they would have went with this lineup, you know, with the original material. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it's kind of a, a throwaway album. It's, you know, it's sort of disposable. I mean, to me, the strongest tracks are Ain't It Fun, Attitude, You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory. Those are the ones that resonate the most with me. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, John, you played it for your son and the, the fear track resonated with him. So you went back and, and now are taking him to the source and, and he's listening to the rest of the fear record. So if that was the mission of this record to spread uh, people's interest in bands that influenced them that may not have been widely successful on a, a big front and, and have people go back to the source, then you know this album is still completing that mission and doing the job it was intended for to this day. Yeah, I will absolutely buy that. I mean, I, I think that in many ways, that's sort of the plan that they were going for. Um, at least I hope so. You know what I mean? I mean, it does. It feels like a little bit of a throwaway, but at the same time, um, you know, I prefer, I prefer Garage Days by Metallica to this in terms of like punk cover records. Which is a much shorter record, right? It's only like six tracks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which isn't... And then there's Garage Days Revisited, but yeah. Yeah. Right, which is kind of silly because it's, well, whatever. <laughs> it's a whole other discussion. Though. Yeah, never never let Metallica not find something they can profit off of. Um, I, I have to tell you, that just reminded me of something. There's this great... Uh, Facebook exchange, speaking of that, where I guess Motley Crue just released like the 
40 year whatever remaster of uh or 35 years of shout at the devil right yeah. and so there's this meme on facebook where somebody had written like oh man how many times have they remastered this album that's motley for you always going for the cash grab you know and like the motley crew official thing wrote back and commented on it and said so don't buy it we don't care <laughs> 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 I thought it was just great and very motley. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is funny. It, it, are you guys seeing the ads for this like Destroyer 45th anniversary? Like, oh, yes. What the, the fuck is that? Version. I mean, do we really need that? And you're going to buy it, aren't you? I don't know. I mean, I'm on the. Are you going to get it, Mike? I'm going to get it, you know. Okay. Maybe I can just go over to your house and yeah. read yours and listen to yours. Come on up. Yeah. I don't. Okay. okay. Yeah, come on I, I there's just enough stuff in it to make me go like ah damn I do want to see that I do want to right. read that I yeah. do want to listen to it. Well, that's what but all these bands also, do now. Yeah, it's also the kind of thing that I know once I listen to it once or twice I'll be like, well, I'll put that in the corner now. <laughs> like, yeah, but you know what history you know. history has shown, and I've learned this when it comes to vinyl or CDs, whatever. Like eventually, if you don't buy it when it comes out, eventually there's gonna be a point where you can't get it and you're gonna have to pay a lot more for it later. So I'd much yeah. rather pay for it now and you not have to hunt for it later at a higher price. So that's my approach to it. Well, there's your lesson for the week, kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll be back soon. Uh, hopefully next week we can talk about, actually, you know what? Probably not next week. So we'll be back in two weeks uh, to talk about Chinese democracy. Mm -hmm.